Good day, my friends. This is Under Review, the tennis podcast from an insider's perspective. I'm Craig Shapiro, and on the show, I talk with the most interesting voices in the sport. We have a great show for you today. The news about the coronavirus pandemic is coming in fast and furious, and we sincerely hope that all of our listeners are looking after themselves and staying out of the fray. As for us, we're going to continue bringing you my interviews with the best in tennis. Our guest was slated to broadcast the BNP Paribas Open for Amazon Prime coverage of the event for Great Britain. And when the event canceled, we sat down a couple days later and chopped it up. He grew up in Essex, England in the 70s and 80s with parents that were players and played junior tennis all over Europe. As a pro, he rose to 80 in the world, posting wins over Michael Chang, Michael Steech, and Tomas Muster to name a few. As a coach, he is credited with helping a young Andy Murray move from 350 into the top 50. Mark Petchy is going to tell us his perspectives on the current tennis landscape in light of the coronavirus pandemic. Describe what it was like to see the rise of Tim Henman. And he's going to tell us about his time with Andy Murray. We sat down with Mark and Indian Wells shortly after the BMP Paribas Open was canceled. This episode is brought to you by Sergio Tacchini, the official apparel sponsor of Under Review. See what they're doing at SergioTacchini.com. All right, well, listen, first of all, first and foremost, uh, we're in the lobby of the JW Marriott uh, desert storm. I don't know. Every every let's, every place. Let's give it. Let's give him a big plug. I'm a big loyalty member, so let's go for the Marriott. Every place that is. This is like one of the great lobbies in the world. I mean, you can look greatest at it. hotel chain in the world, Craig. But what, but what a what a lobby though. It's as far as lobbies go, yeah, they got the best lobby. It's not like your house. This lobby, you, you sure? look out to. And that's the thing about Palm Springs, right? It's like uh, this this area. It's just. I mean, there's even. Palm trees inside the lobby. There's palm trees and mountains everywhere. It's the best. Yeah, no mountains in there yet, but they're working on it. You don't have this in London either. <laughs> this um, gentleman you hear is a prolific tennis man from the UK. He is the voice, one of the voices, one of the faces of Prime Videos, Amazon Prime Videos, newish telecast, right? Absolutely. Yeah, it is new, new, new world streaming. Former coach Judy Murray shared his name with us, which got me being like, oh, wait, we should probably have him on the show. Uh, Mark Petchy. Welcome. Thank you for having me on your show. It's a pre- well, listen, pleasure and privilege to be here. Finally, we got a chance to get this done. Yeah, we um, try to do it in Australia. I thought you were ducking I, I missed me. you around. No, I no, no, man. No. You were I would, si- you're sick. I don't duck anyone. You got sick? I got very sick. You yeah. got very sick. Yeah, we don't want to talk about that, though. That's that's uh, that's too rife. But, but that wasn't COVID-related. I, I don't know. It was a pretty bad virus, but nobody caught it around me, so I've got to figure it wasn't. All right, well, let's just get right to this. You know we do a five-set format. Yeah. Our first set is the off-the-court report. You are a Londoner. I am. And and is it true? Worse than and, that, I'm from Essex. There's a show in England called Towie. The only way is Essex. And what um, and what team do you support? I'm a West Ham United fan. Gone a little cool in recent years, to be honest. Wasn't a big fan of the change from Upton Park to the Olympic Park. Uh, yeah, we're struggling, although uh, maybe more exciting trying to stay out of the relegation zone than just being mid-table. So you don't, like, paint your face and no, wear Arsenal no, or no. Chelsea? None of that? None of that, okay. no. no. And 
I'm forever blowing bubbles though. And you have children, you have children that are college players here. Absolutely, yeah. One twenty-one year old. She's at SMU at Dallas. Uh, she's been there now. She's with Jeff Novello, who's the coach there, just taken over in the last year. He's been awesome for the program. What a great school. Been very fortunate for her to be there. She's doing pre-med. My other one is at University of Oregon. She just started last year. So that's Phil Knight's college, obviously, as well. Ex-alumni. So awesome, awesome opportunities for both girls. By the way, um, the University of Oregon, the Ducks, I mean, that's like... That's like sports paradise. I mean, at the moment, huh? They just won Pac-12. What well, is just it? The, the, the football, the women's basketball, and the men's. It's unbelievable. Their facilities and such, yeah. though, is magical. It's yeah. an incredible thing. Yeah. Now, um, are you a psychotic <laughs> tennis parent? Never been. No, no. Okay. It's been it's been a long journey. Don't don't. I've learned a lot uh, about being a tennis parent. I've learned a lot about my kids, myself. I think they've learned a lot from tennis um, as well in terms of picking yourself up off the canvas. But we, we, I think you could get them on the show. I think they'd be honest enough to say that they've never had, we've never really had a dysfunctional relationship because of tennis, thank goodness. Maybe that's why they're not playing pro, though. And they, can they, <laughs> could they play pro tennis, or that's not really on my, the table? My youngest one wants to. My eldest is definitely going down another path, but she's she loves her tennis. She would hate to be at college without tennis. She's at SMU. The one at SMU could yeah. play pro tennis, No, maybe? the one at University of uh, Oregon, that's a, that's a goal. That's the one at Oregon can maybe play she pro tennis. She wants to try, yeah. Yeah, so she's she's young. She's eighteen. She turns nineteen in September. She's she needs to uh, develop. What's the name? Maya, Maya Pecci. Maya Pecci. Yeah. All right. There we go. And you are, aside from broadcasting, what else you got going on? Do you are you do you work? Are you a high performance coach still? Not a, not anymore, Craig. No, I. Uh, so basically, my story. Let's go back. I I quit tennis at nine, in nineteen ninety eight. Um, had a career high of eighty. Couple of Lucky top 10 win somewhere in there. Yes, you um, did. I then wasn't sure what I was going to do, to be honest. My wife was pregnant. Um, I met up with a guy from athletics in athletics who sadly passed, subsequently passed away called Kim McDonald. He uh, looked after a lot of Kenyan athletes at the time. And he actually was in charge of Alex Bogdanovich. He was his agent. And he kind of said to me, what do you want to do? And I was like, I'm not sure. And anyway, he said, well, not with Alex to coach, but... There's a girl, Sylvia Talaya, from Croatia. He said, like, why don't you fly to Australia? Let me tell me what you think and see what you can do. So I did. And basically, I went on the WTA tour for two years. That was my first two years. Sylvia Talaya had some good wins. Um, she, I, I, I feel like she might have been hindered by injury. She had a little bit of a shoulder problem. Um, yeah, we worked together for two years. She went from, like, 90 to top 20. She won a couple of WTA yeah, titles. Yeah, she had so. a good minute on that yeah. tour. And I'm going to take all the credit for that, Craig. You know how coaches are. 100%. On the way, on the way up, hey, that's all me. On the I'm way down, take credit for this not interview. to me anymore. <laughs> I'll take credit for how good you sound on this. <laughs> um, if you finish with Talia, then what? So, yeah, actually, Tina, we also, I also worked with Tina Pisnik at that time. She's actually in Chicago now coaching. I saw her at the Labor Cup. But, um, but so... Um, Generally speaking, the broadcasting is all you do? Now, yeah, and some holiday coaching in the UK. If you want to come to Greece or Italy or Croatia, hey, give me a shout out. I do some uh, holiday coaching for a company called Nielsen Active Holidays from the UK. That's it. Oh, is that cool? And are you on the court there? Yeah, I'm on the court nine hours a day with uh, guests and everything else. We play, yeah. we coach. and okay, so I did a little bit of work, of course, with Maria Sakari, uh, back are, end of 2019. Are you still world? Are you still world class? World class. You still oh. hit the ball with anyone in the world? Nah, I think I, 
I don't think I was ever world class, Craig. You know, like I don't think you can fall. I didn't have Come a pedestal. Come on, man. top hundred in the world. I didn't have a pedestal to fall off. You know, so uh, I, I still enjoy playing, but you know, up and down the middle. But if you get me moving, I'm in all sorts of trouble. And um, uh, you enjoy broadcasting? That's a good, great question. If I'm being totally honest, and we're here today to be candid, right? I probably enjoy coaching more than the broadcasting side of things. Um, I feel the adrenaline rush is obviously great in, in commentary. Uh, it's probably greater in coaching when you've developed or helped you feel somebody's career go from a certain place to a new destination and the things that you've worked on. Um, that's, that's a real thrill. I think probably if you were to ask me, and obviously having worked with Andy, um, that was a real uh, fortunate break for me in my terms of my life and career and what a great experience that was. But he was already a great player, but arguably I feel like Sylvia was the best job I ever did as a coach. Um, and I can still remember one point uh, with her in the final of the tournament and coming into a volley. She never volleyed up until I started working with her virtually. Literally a practice hour was 55 minutes up the middle of the court and some serves. We're going to talk about your career further down the show. Let's get into our second set. What? First of all, this is like being in the twilight zone. The tournament was canceled about forty-eight hours ago. Yeah. Okay. Um, my sort. I I had a conversation with Donna Vekic yesterday. Yeah. I had a conversation with Eva Maioli yesterday. I had a conversation with Barbara Stritzova yesterday. Yeah. Everybody is like lost in space. Nobody seems to have a good feel for what just happened. Do you have a good feel for what just happened? Can you break this down? Do you know, I think it was the right decision in the end. I think. Explain what happened. Yeah. I mean, obviously coming to the desert, we were all obviously, we're very aware of COVID-19. We're very aware of sporting events around the world that are getting played behind closed doors or potentially getting cancelled. Right, every, well, then they cancelled Ultra in Miami yeah. and everyone was on. I felt it too. I could, you know, being on site from Friday, you felt like this thing was had the chance of getting shut. And obviously the Challenger was here, so it was an awkward kind of situation. So you're watching the Challenger play. Oracle Challenger was playing. There was fans but you st- I'll tell you, be honest, between you and I, mean, I felt like this thing was getting shut down. Did you feel that? Yes, I, I, I was aware four days before it got pulled off that if there was one case here, that, I, that, that they were going to pull it. I also felt, too, that this might be the only tournament in the world that would act quickly because <laughs> the money is not as important um, somehow. And I think, I think the tournament have made <laughs> They rocked the right- this thing on a loss for forever, right? I mean... But I think this, I mean, at the end of the day, you've got to look at the demographic here. You know, this is a serious issue here. You know, if you're looking at the toxicity of COVID-19 and the demographic here in the desert, it's, you know, it's, it's right in the wheelhouse. Like, you can't you take that You mean that, that because risk. there's a lot of senior citizens yes. here. Yeah. So if the idea is, is that if one person was infected, you need to look at started Italy. banging around the tournament, they could get people that could die from it Absolutely. sick, uh, money, you know, easy. Yeah, while there were no cases here, you had a case to run the tournament. The moment that one came in Riverside, they, they had to pull the plug. It's numbing, though. Did you have any interesting uh, conversations yesterday or um, the day before? I mean, everyone's got an opinion, Craig. Like, I'm sure you've got an opinion, everyone. I was trying to formulate mine. I kind of don't. Like, I'm yeah. sort of like, I'm, I don't have a great feel for 
I think what I just said is my opinion. It's yeah. like, man, if if this is true, but my my other opinion is it's like, okay, well, if that's true, <laughs> yeah. Why are you and I talking right now? Why is Uber still running? Why is Lyft still running? Why are restaurants still in business? Because yeah. you would think that everything's got to go on full lockdown. If you're going to shut down the tennis tournament, you may as well shut down yeah. movies. Well, I think it's coming. Huh? It's I coming. mean, I'm hearing I'm hearing schools like Harvard are getting shut. I'm hearing my daughter saying that she's going to have two weeks of online classes, not go into school after spring break. I mean, this thing's huge. You're fairly verbose on social media. Yeah. You have a lot of significant opinions. You have said that this isn't really a tour. It's yeah. just individual events yeah. that are owned by individual owners and that they ultimately will do what they want to do. Yeah. Explain. So basically, yeah, the ATP tour as a name is a nice umbrella across a bunch of different individual entities that are owned by millionaires, billionaires, companies that basically run these events for the players to come and participate in. And WTA too. Same, and the same WTA, thing. yeah, of course, yeah. Across, across the board. Both tours are the same. They don't, nothing changes. And there's continuity. Um, there is no continuity. No, because at the end, of, and, and also the other thing you're going to have to remember here as well is that some of these different tournaments are going to have different stakeholders. Like the French government are going to make the decision about Monte Carlo, about whether or not that event can go ahead. How are they going to play that? Well, exactly. It's so, on the border of Italy. And, How are they and, going to and, play that? Did you have any, did anyone say anything to you yesterday about Miami? Because no. Miami, IMG owns yeah. Miami. They're maintaining that they're going to play. Yeah. How I mean, are they going to play? They they canceled Ultra. But behind, they, without they fans, the, I'm they, assuming that that's the number one go-to for them at the moment is without fans in Miami. And just you broadcast. Know? And also the other thing you got to remember, break down here is like, you know, like take the French Open with a roof now. That's an indoor event. That's got different parameters for the French government to decide whether that event can go ahead with a roof shut at any stage. Uh, Monte Carlo, as I said, um, whether you have fans, you don't have fans, and also the insurance value here. Like, obviously, if it gets shut by health officials, that has a different impact on these tournaments' insurance policies. There's a lot in play here. There's a lot to break down, and there's yeah. a lot to unpack week to week. What else are you going to tell me about this before we move on? I'm going to say that it's, it's, it's unfortunately, it's going to be something that just basically uh, gets worse before it gets better, in my opinion. I, I do think there's a good chance, though, that Miami will happen without fans. I may be in the minority, but that's kind of how I feel. Let's move into our third set. Uh, this is a portion of our show. We talk about your career. This will be a short portion. This is like a six-love set, and I know about those, Craig. Now, where does your tennis begin? My parents. My parents uh, both played. Uh, I traveled with them in the UK. Uh, they played in the summer when their jobs uh, allowed. My club, mom was players. A club players. Club players. Or better than club players. Yeah, uh, better than club. My, my parents were both county players. My mom actually lost in the last round of qualifying at Wimbledon three times. Um, so better than better than club, but yeah. obviously not pro. And I followed them around when I was young to these coastal events. It was like a summer holiday. They play tennis. Eventually, Craig, what else are you going to do, man? I mean, you're going to pick up a racket, right? Otherwise, you're just going to be you're just going to be sitting around getting bored out of your brain as a seven year old. Junior player bouncing around the UK. Did you play like? Would you go to Italy or? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know. When did you start to have show some? Um, 12s. 
Yeah, it's a decent 12-year-old, so I was in the top five for most of my career in the UK, in Britain juniors. Um, and then, so yeah, so I was fortunate enough to get on those trips, go to the internationals, did okay, was an okay junior worldwide, uh, uh, you know, the end of my 18th career, and then decided to turn pro. Sucked for a good three, four years, nearly quit. Now, you're older than Tim Henman. Yes, I am. I know I don't look it. You're four or five years older? Yeah, I think I must be. I'm 50 this year. Okay, no, no, and he he and I must be the same age, like 47, 48-ish. Okay, yeah. He's um, looking very old and weathered. Did you see him? Yeah, he does. He, he looks does. Terrible. Yeah, terrible. Shout out to yeah. Tim Henman. Yeah. <laughs> um, Savior of British tennis. Yeah. Andy came along. So, did you see him uh, in juniors? Did yeah, he kicked my ass, unfortunately, when he was like 18. So, uh, I knew he was good. Yeah, he was an awesome talent completely devoted to the sport, always had unbelievable self-belief. Would it be fair to say that you came up with him or is that I was, not I was, I was a few years ahead of him, um, but he, he got past me very quickly, like an F1 car and a Skoda. Yeah, I feel like his talent was intensely incredible. Yeah. I mean, he was a great, great, great player. Yeah, and he was a—he uh, was—he's very underrated, I think, in terms of what people realize how good he was. And his athleticism too. Yeah, I mean his his anticipation of what was going to happen out there, his hand skills. I mean, yeah. listen, the guy's been better than a scratch golfer. I mean, he's a talent yeah. of note. Tim you know? Penman. Yeah, yeah, he makes you sick. Anyway. Like, now, when did you did you have a result that you were like, oh shoot, maybe I could play pro tennis? Well, that's a great question. I nearly quit at 21. I lost to a guy called Jeff Hunter, you never heard of, but they, he will be known in British circles. Love on one at a tournament in the UK in Telford. And I came off and my now wife was my girlfriend then. And I sat in a back room there and I cried my eyes out for about four hours. And I just said, this is it. I'm going to university and I'm done. Anyway, I took a month off to reconsider, to think and whatever. And then I decided to try. And then that year, she ended up starting to travel with me, Craig. And, um, the missus. The missus. And I was actually pretty transformational. I stayed away from the UK for seven months in a row. I just went away. And I remember winning a challenger in Australia and thinking to myself, okay, I actually think I could do this now. Maybe I can be a, what, what I guess we consider a pro player being on the tour, whether that's top 100 or whatever. And that's what happened. You know, I, I managed in that seven months to get myself in the top 100. Although having said that, in that period, I went to San Jose, uh, the ATP Tour event, the first event I ever qualified for on ranking. And I played Richie Rennenberg in the opening round there. And Richie kicked my ass so badly that I was back in tears in the locker room on my own in that San Jose stadium, crying my eyes out for another three hours, thinking, well, that was one level and that's a whole different level. And I don't know how I'm gonna bridge the gap between being 120 and being able to play these guys in the future. So. Listen, there's a lot of hurdles that tennis players have to go through. Some of them are quite demoralizing. Some of them are quite destructive mentally as well. It, it's an amazing life, but it certainly comes with its, with its downfalls. Um, your best moment on tour? Best moment on tour was beating Michael Chang in LA. Um, yeah, that was my best match. When was that? Well, I want to say it was like 94. Uh, you know, Michael obviously was an amazing player and beat him in LA, obviously on hard courts. And yeah, just one of those matches where everything went well for me and not for him. Like it wasn't his best day, but that's what I needed to win those matches. Beat Michael Chang at UCLA. I mean, come on, that's a great win. You beat Tommy Haas. 
A young Tommy Haas. Tommy Haas was 12 at the time. I'm not quite sure how he <laughs> slipped in. I think, they, I think they mistook the junior jaw for the senior jaw. Um, uh, you know, you also had success in doubles. Um, did you enjoy your? Did you enjoy those? Like you had a ten-year career. It's from what Mike yeah. kind of. Yeah, I, I loved it, Craig. Listen, thank, I mean, I loved a lot of it. I did have some very dark moments as well. Um, dark, very dark. Yeah, like I mean, very like bleak, like mental, you know, depths that you don't really want to go to. And you know, I, I walked away from tennis, and I'm not going to lie, I felt like a complete failure. You know, I am, um, you know, definitely felt as though going into tennis I was hoping obviously like everyone does that they're going to be playing back end of majors and everything else and I felt like you know possibly I could have done it and when you have a few top 10 wins I beat Michael Stieg and you know Thomas Mitt and Pat Rafter you kind of feel like why am I not there and when it doesn't happen that can take you into some places that take some serious reverse gearing out of. When you look back now and you close your eyes and you kind of think back um, do you think you made mistakes yeah, of course. Of course I made mistakes. What's an example of like something? I should have come to college. I was I was an immature 18-year-old. Number one, I had a chance to come to USC and I and I didn't come because we didn't really go down that path at the UK. Have it, I should have come for two or three years. I should have played 70 matches a year, got myself gnarly, grizzly, match tight, got myself mature, uh, stopped living as an 18-year-old by trying to play a pro sport. Um, that would have been my number one regret is not coming to U.S. college. Mark Petchy should have gone to college. Yeah. You believe in college tennis. I believe massively in college tennis, yeah. I mean, I mean, it's not for everyone. Why? Because if you've ever been out on tour as an 18, 19-year-old and you get smashed on a Monday, you have six days to, like, feel depressed and work on your game. And then you have another six days. Not everyone is Novak, Serena, Andy, you know, most people go through some pretty terrifyingly low moments with financial stresses and people saying you're not good enough and all of these things. There's a lot of negative negativity for four years. You come to college, you can kind of you can kind of work out your game, you can develop as a player, you can decide whether actually this is the career you want for yourself rather than being in something that maybe you would just happen to be good of, but you actually hate. And and that's where I think the downside with college tennis is the coaches don't have as much time as people think they do to develop a game. You have to kind of go there ready-made, bolted in to just get the match practice. Um, when did you know that it was going to be a wrap? End? Yeah. Poor, I, was on, I had a pretty poor sort of like six months. I then was starting to turn it around. I got to about 140 again. I was in the final of Istanbul Challenger and I pulled my stomach muscle away from my rib. And I was, I tried to come back too quick. I, you know, I stunk for like six more months. And then I was just like, you know what? It, it, I just can't do this anymore. I'm, you know, I'm not gonna win Wimbledon anymore. I kind of need to find another career, whether that's in tennis or not. I cannot be a 35 year old walking around the Challenger circuit, not making any money. And then what do I do? So I needed to pull the ripcord then. And you never became a double specialist. No, you it wasn't really a route and I didn't really love it enough, if I'm being honest. I probably would have liked, I should have probably played. I was a servant volleyer, a crap groundie. So, you know, it would have been, but to be honest, I just didn't have the passion for just playing doubles. You were tired uh, without, with, with no real fanfare or was there some? 
I think we, uh, I think we maybe had like a lemonade or something in the in the lounge of my parent. No, there was no pamphlet. But I'm saying the the, uh, the the British press wasn't like Mark Petchy. Uh, I don't know. I think there might have been a post, uh, postcard, sort of like square of about an inch by an inch of the classified ad. There you go. Obituary, tennis obituary. There you go. Come on, man. Um, what happened next? So that was the time I met a guy called Kim McDonald, who was a Yorkshire guy who was an awesome person. You talk about a mentor. Sadly, I only knew Kim for a couple of years because he passed Kim McDonald. Kim McDonald. He was in athletics management. He looked after a lot of the Kenyan athletes, Sonia O'Sullivan, the great Irish runner. Um, beautiful man, unbelievable ability to see the positives in a negative situation, which I wasn't in a great place when I first started. Well, what do you have to do with tennis? So he had nothing to do with tennis. He was ended up becoming uh, the agent for Alex Bogdanovich for a while, the British oh, player. Oh, I'm sorry, okay, so, yeah, he, so he was looking after Bogdanovich. Oh, got it, I see. So He was the agent. Yes. And then he worked you into the coaching. So he worked me into the coaching, but not with Alex. I helped Alex a little bit when I stopped because I was still hitting with Stefan Edberg in London when, when Stefan had retired. We were hitting three days a week, playing a bit of golf, and I got Alex to come down to hit with him a couple. For of our times. listeners, um, yeah. Stefan Edberg is a longtime London. He was London based. He's back in Sweden now, but really? he based himself out of London yeah. for a long, long time. It seems to me that once you win Wimbledon, uh, you move to London. It's like <laughs> Pat Cash, Boris Becker, Stefan Edberg all have uh, London. Well, uh, it's basically because he could come here and know he could kick every British player's backside and feel good <laughs> at practice weeks. And there might have been a tax thing at the time as well. Who knows? Oh, that's interesting. Is that, London's always been a fairly favorable tax environment for a lot of overseas people, not just not just tennis players. It, it's kind of tightened up recently. I didn't realize yeah. that. Um, so you're, you're practicing with Stefan. Yeah. Um, and, and, Alex. Then, and then and then Talaya came into the mix. So then there was a guy called Momo Yelovich who does a little bit of broadcasting in tennis. Uh, does a lot for the ball compress and everything. He has a he had a son called Boyan Yelovich who was trying to play at the time. Friends with Alex, he knew Momo knew Sylvia, and that's where Kim said, "There's a girl. Why don't you go and see what you can do with her?" What did you learn from Sylvia Talaya? What did I learn from Sylvia Talaya? Great question. I learned that you can definitely change somebody's outlook on their own game with perseverance, positivity. I think that choosing your right words at the right time is a, is a very important uh, skill to learn as an ex-tennis player. You become a coach. You've got to, it's not just your way, the highway. It doesn't always work like that. Um, but it takes so much time, Craig. I, I'm going to tell you one quick story. So basically, when I first hit with Sylvia in Miami, I think it was in 99, having watched her in Australia, she was 90 in the world. I told Kim she could get to top 30. Uh, she got smoked by Capriati in Miami. And afterwards, I said, look, we need to develop all aspects of your game, particularly the volleys, which you don't do anymore. I spent religiously that year at least an hour virtually every day feeding balls, getting her to volley, volley, volley. She was like, this is a waste of time. We don't come, I don't come in, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, the next January, she's playing Conchita Martinez in the final of Brisbane, and she's break point up, 4-3 in the third. She ends up coming in on a ball and hitting a slotted forehand volley away cross court, short angle that we had spent seven months working on. And I looked at that moment and I thought, my goodness, everyone around here will think that looks routine. That was seven months of work that went into that one shot to have her have confidence enough to do the right thing. 
What was it like working in women's tennis? There's a lot of male chauvin. There's a lot of chauvinism um, in tennis. Uh, Do you think so? I think I yes. Mean, it's one I, of the I, most I, gender equal sports now. I, well, I think it's improved, but yeah. when you talk with men mm-hmm. about women's tennis, quite often there's derogatory sentiment. You clearly are uh, don't don't share that. No. Uh, what was it like being on the women's tour? I mean, it was different, but it was also... What do you mean? What does that mean, different? Uh, Different in terms of, like, I felt like the players didn't maybe inhabit the same space as the male players did. Like, they didn't get on quite as well. It was very much isolated. Like, they were very much, like, just want to stay with me as the coach or Tina as the other player. It wasn't kind of this unity. I think it's better these days. I think it seems better, whether it is or not, I don't know. It seems like maybe some of the women, like... Anisimova and and, and Bethany Maddock and and they seem like they've sort of changed the culture a little and I don't know that to be certain but I I only you know I see like Sophia Kennedy it looks like it looks like a lot of the players seem to you know do stuff together and such and it it could be a social media mirage I don't know it could be but for a long time that was what they said that they practice with men they're coached by men and they don't really socialize. Yeah. Well, Sylvia didn't want to play a lot, and Tina didn't always want to play a lot with other players. They wanted to hit with me. They were very comfortable hitting with me. They didn't want to get into that whole kind of combat that male players kind of prefer to do um, in practice. And that was a bit of a change for me. So it was long hours because I ended up having to do all the hitting. I mean, in my off season in Australia, I actually took a third uh, player down there and I was doing six hours in a row because they didn't want to hit almost with each other. So that was the major change. And obviously, like, the way you talk, you know, it has to be different. The way you speak. The way you speak sure, has sure, to be sure. different. You have to learn that, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and so you can't just be like you would speak to a guy. Andy Murray. Yeah. Where does, it, where does the story begin? So with Andy... And let me just preface yeah. this by saying Judy Murray credited you with... Um, I don't. I, she hasn't cashed the check yet. Can you believe Judy that? Judy Murray. I'm still looking at my bank account to this day, and she hasn't cashed it, but Ju- she will one day. Judy Murray yeah. said that you took Andy from you know no ranking or 800 into the top hundred, and then I just read you took him into the 50. Yeah. Where does it begin? It's kind of Judy, and then she doesn't need to say that because he was a phenomenal player and she did an amazing job with him, but um, it's kind of... So I worked for the LTA for 18 months uh, as the head of men's national performance manager. I looked after all the kids uh, from 18 and up. Some, Who'd you report to? Uh, at the time, David Felgate, who was in charge. David Felgate, longtime uh, British coach. Coach. Yeah, um, Tim Henman. Coach Tim Henman. Um, Donna Vekic, Tim, uh, Dan Evans more recently, a number of, number of people. So he was in charge of the overall program. He called me in. I was still doing Sky Sports commentary at the time. It was, uh, it was busy. Um, and so obviously through that job and some of the changes that we made, I obviously, Andy was in Casal Sanchez at the time in Spain. Casal so, Sanchez Academy, continue. Yes, it was in Barcelona. And so as part of my role, I went to spend some time with Andy in Barcelona to see how he was doing. Um, and obviously things were great with Pato Alvarez looking after him, a great Spanish coach who's co- probably coached two million yeah, people. Yeah, Pato into the Alvarez top. is a name that um, 
you know, yeah. if you've been bouncing around pro tennis, you hear it. Go yeah. on. So I went there, spent some time with him, and then obviously stayed in contact. And then in the... What oh, kind of kid was he? Um, he did you do, was he a hot-tempered uh, Scott? Not, when I spend time with him, not at all. I mean, Andy is a two very different people, as everyone now knows. You know, like he's in the office, he's a fireball, and he's, and he, he's just a killer instinct. He wants to win at all costs. Off the court, uh, yeah, he loves the debate. He loves to, he loves to, you know, question. He's smart. Argue. Oh, he's, he's smart and quirky. Smart. You don't get to, to yeah. being the best player in the world without being smart. That's, that's not a, it's, you don't get given a fortune cookie with your name on it that, that puts you at world number one. You know, he is, he's got one of the best tennis IQs. He's socially uh, very aware. You liked him. I loved Andy. I still, I mean, look, I love him. I mean, he was a huge, it was 10 months actual coaching, but we'd known each other for an awfully long time before that. And the first time I saw him play Craig was in Craig Lockhart. And I was not, I was watching him play along with a lot of the other British players on some super light, fast Craig Lockhart indoor courts that we love in Britain. Develops your ground, he's great. And Hold on, I yeah. don't know the reference. Craig Lockhart, it's in Scotland. It used to be where we used to play nationals for Britain. It became a big tennis center. Okay. Um, indoor courts, Got we it. were running a futures event there. Andy was playing, he was back from Spain. And I remember being probably three courts away watching him play his singles match and saying to someone, well, I don't need to worry about him because he's gonna be fine. He's got so much time on the ball, it's a, it's a gift on these courts. If you can have that much time, he's going to be absolutely fine. And he was um, uh, he was a tip-top junior. Oh, he was, yeah, he was one of the best in one of the great eras, you know, with like Monfils and Chilich and Del Pocho and Bagdadis. So he turns pro. Yeah. And you're with him? Yeah, because he kind of lost his love a little bit with Pato um, about six weeks before Queens, the grass court period, and he called me. And he said, I just, you know, it's just not working. And that's what happens in tennis. Um, no hard feelings. And I just said, listen, I, I'll look after you on the grass because we've got nobody else available. I said, and then subsequent to Wimbledon, after Wimbledon, we'll look at who we're going to get in charge of you. There was no great plan for me to go back on tour. That was how we met. And then at Queens, he did pretty well. He won his first round. He then beat Taylor Dent. He lost to Thomas Johansson in a fairly epic match when uh, he went down on the court. He then hurt his ankle. Uh, he had 10 days off. He then obviously played Wimbledon. He beat Bastel, Stepanek, and then obviously lost the epic with now Bandian on center court, which obviously then everybody saw. So Sean Connery was talking about how great this kid was going to be. We all knew then how good he was going to be. And that's kind of how it morphed into me coaching him full time. What did you learn from Andy Murray and being with him? And, and what was it like to go from zero to, huh, yeah, right? Like to go from unranked to 50? Yeah, I think it was like 350 when we, when we kind of hooked up at Queens okay. on that kind of loose agreement. Um, what did I learn from Andy? I learned that people are special. I learned that people are incredibly diverse with their uh, emotions. Uh, what you see isn't always what people uh, understand. Um, he was a genius, and I remember an Aptos Challenger that he won. I said it to him. I said, you're a genius. I said, there's stuff out there on the tennis court that I could only dream of doing. I said, you know, at some point when this all comes together and it's going to come together pretty quickly, you're going to be right up there. Our next challenge is going to be how do you beat the best players at the back end of a Grand Slam when they're equally as talented 
and equally as confident because that's where you're heading. And you never got there with him? No. Why? Why? Because at certain stages... We talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah, so no, gotta, absolutely. You know. I mean, you know, I mean, I would never, you know, we. you obviously get to certain points in a relationship like that, in a coaching relationship, Craig, where, you know, it gets, it gets to a crossroads and it got there unbelievably quickly with Andy. You know, he went from 350 to inside like the top 100 that year. He made the final of Bangkok, he beat Shrishapan. And that was another thing that I realized how different he was. When he was playing Paradorn in the semis, a crowd against him and everything else, he was a set down. He had a set point in the second set. He was probably about a meter and a half outside the doubles line and behind the doubles line for a pass into a postcard sized part of the court that he had to hit to, to get the set. And he made it. And he ends up winning in three, plays Roger in the final, ends up losing, but what a great experience. He's like top 70 in the world. And we were having dinner that night after the Paradorn win. And I said to him, my goodness, I said, that's probably the best pass I've ever seen. Like, and on such a big moment as well. And he looked at me deadpan, Craig, and he goes, uh, Mark, if I'd have missed that, I would have been so, I don't know if you can swear on your show, but he, I, I, he said, I, I have to make that. And I like looked at him and I was like, oh my goodness, this isn't bravado. This isn't arrogance. This is just, that's my skill level. And I expect to make that. And I was like, okay, that's a whole different level again from what most people are thinking on a tennis court. And when you ask me what I learned, that was that. Why we ended up finishing, because we got to a kind of crossroads after Australia where he lost to... Chela there, he lost to Lubacic in a very tight match, had a couple of chances in the second, or one chance to break in the second against Ivan, who was top seed, another one in the third. And we were just discussing tactically how he should play. And I had my opinion about how he was going to beat those type of players, the top five in the world, the top, the best players. And he had his at that time. And I had the luxury, rightly or wrongly, of being able to say what I wanted to say because I always had a job at Sky to go back to. Not everyone in coaching has that full back position. So sometimes you're kind of walking on eggshells. Um, I've said this on our show before, but I can recall being in Stuttgart or Hanover and taking a walk with Chris Woodruff's coach, who was his college coach, I think. And uh, he said, you know, a time comes in a coach's career where he's got to put his job on the line. Yeah. Did you do that? Yeah. You did. Yeah. You had a real and he's talk. The boss. And, but hang on, but so you you said, listen, this is how you're going to beat win these matches. And he said, you're fired. No, it wasn't quite as cut and dry as that. It was a discussion that went on for probably like yeah, yeah, yeah. four or five weeks yeah. about how we felt. And it is a it listen, this is a this is a partnership, right? This is not a dictatorship. And it's right. not dictatorship from the player's point of view either. This is a partnership. He's employing you to tell him or her what to do. And we basically got to the point where he didn't feel what I was saying at that stage was necessarily the way that he wanted to play or thought was correct. And he is absolutely valid. There is nothing worse. And it is so important that that player is feeling the right way on court. What'd you tell him? How did you want him to play? I felt that he needed to be more proactive at times in matches. At certain points when he was getting bossed around. Aggressive. Yeah. I felt like he needed to be a little bit more aggressive at times. I felt Less like... counter-punching. Yeah. Do you stand by that? I, I, 
I'll tell you now, the only thing I ever did for Andy was what I felt was in his best interest. Of course. Nothing for me. At the end of the day, whether he thinks I was right or wrong is, is far more valid when I, whether, than what I think. How tragic is what's happened to him? I mean, I think, again, it's all relative in life. I mean, but this is, I think this is pretty tragic, to be honest. Um, obviously, a lot worse things happen in life. It's just the saddest thing that his body and the hip and this uh, hiccup happened. I mean, when it did, it was worse. I mean, he's the best player in the world, right? And he's, and this happened. He was right there, right? Yeah. I mean, it can't be hard. It, it, it couldn't be worse, couldn't be harder. And for him to have endured what he has in the last three years to try and get himself in a position to be back there playing on the court is the most incredible story, what he's been through. I mean, the effort at Queen's Club was... Extraordinary. Yeah. And last year in Antwerp was extraordinary. To beat the players yeah. that he did in Antwerp, it's mind-blowing to, to people like, ordinary people like me. When, do, you, do you speak with him? We do, yeah. Not, I mean, it's not regular, but yeah. you know, now and again we'll chat. We'll chat about things about tennis. He obviously still got huge interest. He still listens to and watches a lot, and you know, but he's obviously focused right now. Is trying to give himself a chance to play. One last shot. One last shot. You think it's one last shot? I mean, he's yeah. got it. One last shot. I mean, it's a substantial surgery he's had. Let's not let's not make any. You know, if. It's huge, you know, like for him, for any tennis player at the top elite, you have to be able to move well. Let's move into our fourth set. Okay. This is the 10 ball scramble. We do not do a deep dive. No. Nope. I say something and you say what comes into your mind. This could go anywhere. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> listen, it's tennis, man. It ain't life or death. Uh, favorite tournament? Wimbledon. Favorite court? Senecal. Senecal, Wimbledon. Yeah. Yeah. Always. I mean, I, I play terribly on it, but it's the best court in the world. How, how many times <laughs> you play on it? I think I've probably played on it about six now. Seven. Yeah. That's just the, that's the cathedral. Yeah. I mean, it's just like you go out there, it's uh, the, 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 the quietness is something that's like actually overpowering until you've done it a couple of times. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's daunting. It's the real thing. Fa- um, favorite city? Melbourne. How good is Melbourne? Melbourne, yeah. I mean, it's just Australia and so, Wimbledon are probably two of the greatest tournaments. Um, but Melbourne sure. is but just Melbourne is a city. so good. Love yeah, it. Love it. And no guns. And very true. No guns, man. You can't do better than that. <laughs> and no one, no one says anything about that. They just say, well, we don't have guns here. Yeah. No, People that look like they would be angry at it say, we have no guns. We don't care. Yeah. Our prime minister canceled guns. Yeah. It and we don't have deci- guns. It was a good decision. Back in the mid nineties. Come on. Yeah. Uh, where do you keep your trophies? I've got to find one. You don't have like a big <laughs> thing of a bazillion no, trophies. All my junior ones went, and there was only one doubles title, and that certainly isn't around the house. How many rackets do you keep in your house? Uh, seven. Seven. Yeah. Not a lucky number. I've got a couple in the locker at Wimbledon, so they stay there permanently. So yeah, at Wimbledon, the All England Club. So I'm fortunate enough to be a member there. Yeah. They made you a member. Incredible, huh? People from Essex even get into the All England Club. It's, an, wow. it's a remarkable thing. My so, man. So, yeah. So, yeah. I might have to um, call in a... Uh, <laughs> I mean, is that even allowed? Are you even allowed to ask a member to... You, you, can, you can ask me to give you tickets, yes. No, you, no, you, I don't want tickets. I want to practice. <laughs> oh, man. you want to practice? Oh, oh okay. You God. can do that. I can bring you down. Uh, yeah. 
Uh, man, that would be incredible. Um, do you keep your credentials? No. What are you doing? Cut them up, throw them away. Come on. You totally. Big entourage or lean and mean? Lean and mean. Why? Don't have the money to pay for it. Do you believe in a lean? I, I, I feel like um, player box management is something that never gets really spoken about, but um, I, I gravitate towards the lean and mean Brad Gilbert, Gil Ray is nobody else kind of a box, sort of the lean, uh, Kenan and her dad. And I, I, think it. it's, I think it's easier to manage. I think once you start getting too many people in there, there's too many, there's too many personalities and relationships to manage. And, and when things are bad, there's a lot of narrative and a lot of chat. Uh, On-court coaching? Hate it. Off-court coaching, coaching from the player's box? It happens anyway. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of like, just let it be what it is. It's kind of become too big a story. We've got bigger issues. Davis Cup. Yeah, not, not a fan of the new format. ATP Cup. Loved it. Best event that I've been on, probably equal with Labor Cup in recent years. Favorite forehand? Rafa Nadal. Favorite backhand? Novak Djokovic. Favorite serve? Serena Williams. Favorite volleys? Let's move into our fifth and final set. This is the king of the court. If you could be the king of tennis and just make a change in the sport with a swing of the racket without any real aggravation, what would it be? Player distribution of prize money, number one. The, you believe the players are being screwed? No. I believe that there's the, the way that the money is getting distributed is wrong. We're doubling almost every round. And if I were in charge, and this won't go down well with people that are winning the event, I would read it, especially at some of the majors, I would take a couple of million out of, the, out of their prize money pot because they're still going to make four times off the back of winning Wimbledon because of the marquee nature of a tournament like that, off-court earnings with endorsements, and take that. And I would push it to the left of the draw, and I would, and I would just push it all the way back to the first round, to qualies, and obviously down to challenges and futures as well. What do you think about what Janko Tipsarovic has said about it, that he thinks that the players are just being absolutely screwed? That I, I, the I, don't money, agree. I don't agree. Don't agree. I don't agree, no. I, I think For that, our listeners, Janko Tipsarovic yeah. has, you know, believes that there's not enough money out of the, out of the, the budget. <laughs> going to player prize money. You've got to look at the infrastructure. Look at the cost of like the French Open putting on the roofs. Look at the, inf look at the increase in prize money from the Grand Slams in the last five to 10 years. Um, and look at what they're also budgeting in terms of like the new courts. Look at what Wimbledon are going to do with the golf course. Where do the players think that this money's coming from as well? These are coming out of loans. These are not, this is, you know, the, you know, I think there needs to be a much bigger dive and a bigger transparency, I think, to some degree from the, from the majors to actually show what is happening with all the money. It kind of feels like at the moment that the, they're, they're kind of running a little bit scared against this onslaught. But to be honest, if I were, if I were in charge of any of them, that's what I would do immediately. I would just take it out of the winners. I would take it out of the semis and I would shove that thing to the left of it. And that would be my number one thing at the moment that I would make a big pitch for. What happens to you next? Um, you, uh, this, is, this, this event has been, you know, for all intents and purposes, uh, Chernobyl. I mean, this is like, a, this is like a, 
as far as tennis goes, sort of a nuclear fallout here. Uh, what's, what's your uh, what's your program? Yeah, listen, I'm feeling a lot for all the freelancers that are out here, people yeah, that are horrible. investing up front in, in covering an event that got canceled as late as it did. I mean, I'm feeling a lot of pain for these people. Um, I think that even what about the people that just come in for the two weeks and work the concessions yeah, and the ushers? I, I mean, mean the whole area is debility. Yeah. I mean, the whole area is hurt. The hotels, the, the restaurants. Yeah, really you know, bad. It's, but you know what? You know, life isn't always going to be perfect. And I think the decision made, in my personal opinion, at my pay grade was correct in the no, end. Yeah. I know it was late, but it was correct. My silver lining is I go see my daughter in San Francisco in five days. And you mentioned you were going to maybe go see the Grand Canyon. Absolutely. You got to make it. You got to make another plan, right? So you're going to drive to the Grand I'm Canyon? driving to the Grand Canyon. Maybe after we finish speaking here, Craig, we'll see. We're going to just going to bounce right out of here. Just going to bounce out of here, find a hotel. That's go see it. it. And hey, listen, we're, I'm hanging around till next Sunday. Whatever. I'm going to see whether Miami gets stays or gets pulled. Um, We'll figure it out, man. Hey, man, you know, um, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, it was a lot of fun to talk with you. It was great to be on it. Yeah, man, Anytime. Cool. I'd, I'd love to be back. That's it. Mark Petchy, you are released. <laughs> huge thank you to Mark Petchy. Huge thank you to La Quinta Tennis Villa and Kristen Bartelt for the accommodations. We'd like to thank Sergio Tacchini, the official apparel sponsor of Under Review. See what they're doing at SergioTacchini.com. Thank you to our patron, Barry Dugan. Next time we meet, let's get that hit in. If you've been thinking about becoming a patron of the show, now is the time. We just posted some new members-only premium content. Head on over to Patreon.com slash UnderReviewTennis to read all about it. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash UnderReviewTennis. We really appreciate it. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review us. Our email is info at underreviewtennis.com. At UR with CS is our Twitter handle. Underreviewtennis is our Instagram and Facebook. And to catch some clips from some of our interviews, check out our YouTube page. Max Loeb edited the show. Our music is by Brian Senti, and Jason Binnick did our mix. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.